But rather than being offended, rather than Isaiah taking a step back and going, oh gosh, sin is in the hands of an angry God. He starts to worship. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. Reminds us of the central place of worship, of that due rightful place, that understanding of our place in the context of creation before the creator God. Before the Holy One, the awesome, mighty one, the one who is bigger than we imagine. As Isaiah again and again and again speaks chapter 6, that vision of the heavenly throne room. And he's just awed by the sight of, of God, surrounded by the angels. And they're crying out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And he's suddenly aware, of, wow, I am one of unclean lips. And yet he's still called to worship. Reminds us that worship is real. It's really, in, it's really easy to, to imagine the prophets of being ones who kind of are so moved in the spirit and kind of emboldened by what they're saying that they, they almost become hard. I, I wonder if you've ever seen street preachers who are sort of giving it all that. I mean, courage, yeah. But comes across, I mean, probably for their own uh, kind of uh, self-protection. There's, there's, there, this seems a real harshness. Repent, the end is nigh, not because the bridge is out. What we, fa- we, we may not have picked up as we read through Isaiah, as he is speaking these words, Isaiah 15, 5, as he's speaking to Moab, he says, My heart cries out over Moab. Her fugitives flee as far as Zor, as far as the of Eglath Shilashiah. They go up the hill of Lilith, weeping as they go. In chapter 16, verse 9, So I weep as Jazir weeps for the vines of Sibmar, Hezbon, and Eliar. I drench you with tears. That the prophet, as he's been speaking the words of God, I suspect catches a sense of the heart of God for the brokenness and the lostness of a people without him. And also so moved by the strength of his message that he weeps too. It's not as though God's kind of uh, standing back and sort of uh, like some sort of uh, dogmatic head teacher with a slightly sadistic outlook. Ha <laughs> ha, I'll teach them. Moved, stirred to weep, even in the midst of saying the way, the course, the denial of the one true God will lead to judgment. Isaiah reminds us, and as he leads us in worship, as he shows what it means to speak and to worship, that worship isn't about hard-heartedness or callous, but rather understood that God is far bigger than we think. Part of, of the reflection of crying, holy, holy, holy. Lord God, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things. He worships because the Lord is bigger than he realized. And he worships because 
The words he speaks are true and righteous and right. I was talking to someone this week about worship in their church in a kind of rural uh, context. And it's a church. uh, It's across the pond in America. And um, have you ever seen the film Footloose? No. It's worth finding on Netflix or uh, in a you know, charity shop and find the, the thing. It's, it's about um, someone from the West Coast, LA, moving to a small town in America, and then it's really strict, and everything's locked down, and like teenagers have to really toe the line. And the ca- character by, played by Kevin Bacon arrives and, and wants to start a dance. Dancing's forbidden from the pulpit. How dare he dance? Because dancing leads to dreadful things, he's told. He says, no, it's about celebrating life. They're leaving school and into the big world and he wants to have a dance and it's this whole thing. And If you've seen it, it's a good, it's a good film. And uh, my friend was talking to me and, uh, and saying in this church, it's still this kind of, they're worshipping God, but it's all very cerebral. Worshipping God and that, you know, there's no ability to be moved. In worship, not that we're real dancers here, I know, you know, but we occasionally get a little bit of emotion going on. Worship's not just about emotion, please don't mishear that. But one of the things that we learn from Isaiah is he responds to the truth of God's word, as he, he, he responds, is, and we see it again and again in the Psalms, is that it encapsulates the whole of life, and we bring whatever circumstance, we, wherever we find ourselves, whatever we've perceived, whatever we recognize God is doing in our life. Sometimes it's in grief, sometimes it's in heavy heart, and sometimes it's in joy and lightness and celebration. But we come to God in worship. These passages, this chapter reminds us of four things particularly, that God's judgment is perfect because it stems from his faithfulness. He is true to his word. He will not tolerate um, uh, sin forever. Because God is holy and awesome, he will judge wrongdoing. Secondly, the, this, uh, this song of praise tells us that God is in control of all world history. He will do what he said he would do. He announces it, and he announces it, and he announces it. I remember in, in college learning about the Old Testament, one of the, the phrases I remember in a, in a whole semester uh, of learning about the Old Testament uh, was summed up by the lecturer. He said, one of the things we learn uh, about um, the Old Testament, he said, is God is a bad judge. He wasn't saying that he doesn't judge, but he, he was saying he's a bad judge because he says he's going to bring judgment, and then he doesn't. He steps back. Well, people are kind of turning. You read the, uh, in Chronicles and Kings, it talks about how there was a reforming king, one who brought people back, and God says, okay, it's okay, and then things declined. And God said, I will send judgment. I will send these foreign uh, nations, and they will come, and they will, they will, they will be a, a, um, like a, a tool of my judgment in order to purify you, bring you back to me. And he says, I will do it. I will do it. And it's almost centuries before that's enacted. God is a bad judge. He doesn't sort of say, right, you're at it, and it's enacted. He gives time for repentance. He gives time for change of heart. He calls out again and again out of love, come back to me, come back to me. But I will do this unless you change tack. 
God is in control and he will do what he says he will do. And he warns, turn from the way of destruction to the way of life. This psalm of, uh, song of praise proves his perfect love. The unjust won't go unpunished. Otherwise, the innocent would continue to suffer. Um, we, we all have something within us that cries justice, don't we? When we see wrongdoing. If you're part of social media when something goes on, I know not everyone is here, but you kind of see it on Facebook. If, if something happens, it's this clamor of, you know, get them, find them. Get, you know, they do what's coming to them. We, we, we long for justice as long as it's someone else. If we're the ones who have mistaken, if we're the ones who have fallen, if we're the ones who are in the wrong, we, we don't want to get uh, just deserts, do we? We're kind of like, please have mercy. Actually, mercy is what I'd like, not judgment. But it's really, really right that we recognize in God's holiness that he's not some sort of thing, oh, it doesn't matter. Actually, when we see the cross, we see not only love and forgiveness, but the fact that, that God himself pays the price, takes upon himself the sin of the world. Forgiveness costs. It costs him his blood. Forgiveness isn't just about, yeah, it doesn't matter. Never mind, they're there. It's about God fronting up front and center into world history. And saying, I will prove myself faithful and just in order to undo the curse, to bear the judgment. And finally, we see in, in, these, in these passages his commitment, God's commitment to righteousness. A sign that God honors his word to those who have ears to hear as a signpost. Hear what he says. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you. In other words, God will do this and people will take note. That it's not just a free-for-all. It's not just um, lawlessness and chaos and, and happens chance. But those with strength and power who oppress the vulnerable, take heed lest you be overcome in the same manner. The God looks out for the vulnerable. Why? I don't know if you heard... The beauty of chapter six, uh, verses six to nine. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a rich feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine. It's like going down to Majestic Wine House and going to the expensive aisle. The aged wine. And going to Waitrose to the, the deli and saying, I'd like the best meats, please. And he says this. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. The sheet that covers all nations. Death. He says, verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace. 
paradise won't be paradise if it's just like the now. If paradise is just the now a bit better, it's been missold. What do I mean? When I first moved into my uh, first church role in Leicester, uh, the lovely is lovely when you move into a, a new place. Everyone's friendly, and and they said you, there's a house with the church. And the house was great, but they said the tenants that had lived there before, not uh, anything to do with the church, they'd rented the um, the manse, uh, hadn't really been into gardening. I was like, oh, okay, I kind of like a bit of gardening. So uh, I remember going to the house, and there was this lovely big bay window in, in the kitchen that looked out. It sounds like it wasn't a grand house, but it was, you know, it was this big window. I looked out onto the, the back garden, and at the end of the garden was a scout hut, red brick. I don't want to kind of portray it as some country sort of pile. It wasn't. It was, and I looked at it, and this garden was, I mean, it was, there was no, there, all you could see of anything horticultural and planned was, was a, a, a paving, you know, a series of flagstones, uh, concrete flagstones down the middle of the garden, everything else. I mean, even that was overgrown. Everything else was weeds and um, thistles and dock leaves and nettles and brambles and, uh, and I have no. I'm just showing you my botan- botanical skills here and began to list all these wonderful weeds and uh, and buttercups and uh, bindweed. Yeah, I mean uh, convolvulus. You know, it's, you know, it's just awful. This thing, and I kind of thought, oh gosh, this is going to be such an effort to try and reclaim. But. In order for it to be made good, all the weeds, all of, I know weeds are just the wrong plants in the wrong place, you know, if you're truly in, in the, nothing's really weeds, but you know what, I'm just, go with me on this illustration. I had to get all of this stuff out. It wasn't just a cosmetic kind of face job of just kind of tinkering with the edges, because this stuff, if it, it's in down there, it's roots and it's, it's underground stuff and uh, it kind of will come back if you don't get the tubers and the little bits of root out they will come back and they will come back and the seeds will grow it was it was a big job and I was thankful I I, you know I suddenly I was like okay taking this garden on Uh, and dear Gareth Ruth Berryman's father was a horticulturalist and and before I arrived he went out with industrial weed killer and he sprayed the lot uh, and they had to change the carpets in the mans because they were awful and he just laid all the old carpets over all all the back garden, and the whole lot was dead. He said, don't plant anything for a while because it's strong stuff, this weed killer. <laughs> don't go out there either. But uh, do you know, I left those carpets there for six months. And anything that tried to get up just couldn't get to the light, and it died. And it looked like a lunar landscape. Muddy carpet. I mean, not the moon's got carpet on it, but do you know what I mean? It was kind of like this mess, this wasteland. And in the spring, I hired a rotivator. What good fun that was. In my Wellingtons, and I rotivated the lot, and I started again. I tell you what, the, all of those weeds, all of the stuff that would have marred my new garden had gone. If I'd have just started to lay the lawn and plant some stuff without a drastic change, it would have all come back and been smothered. God himself says, I 
will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Paradise won't be paradise if it's just like a present world. God, you see, has resolved to do what it takes to make things holy and perfect and all that we could imagine or hope for of a a world without the besetting failure of brokenness and injustice and bad people prospering and innocent people suffering and cancers and diseases and genetic malformation and and, and, uh, of the rich prospering and and the trafficking of human beings and and of weeping in sadness at disease and ultimately death. God says, I resolve to say, I will take away this shroud and make things holy and perfect and all that we hope for and more will be no more death, not death. Darkness, no more death, no more sadness, no more disgrace. If I was in India, there'd be a hallelujah. Hallelujah. Because that is what he does. Phil, uh, you started off his message last week with a, a really helpful uh, series of image about perspective. Do you remember it? There was an Eiffel Tower and someone was like this and there was, I think someone, what was something with the Tower of Pisa, was it pushing it? Embracing it, that was it. And it was to do with, you know, the perspective and he was making the, 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 the truthful statement uh, about uh, that prophets, sometimes the prophets in the Old Testament are given God's word and it, and some of it happens in the present of their experience. Prophecy isn't just about telling the future. It's about speaking forth into the present. And a lot of what the prophet Isaiah is speaking is into the present moment, present tense. But a lot of what he says is also about the future. But from the prophet's perspective, it seems that they're both the same. That's why you can get a picture of someone doing this to the Eiffel Tower. If you place the camera just right, it looks like the hand is massive. It's not. But it appears that way. Or if someone can be embracing the, uh, the, the leaning tower of Pisa because it's like that. It's the same sort of principle if you go, if you go uh, walking and you go, you're kind of driving along towards uh, a series of, of mountains, whether the Lake District or the Alps or, or anywhere else. You, you kind of, on the way uh, up to the mountains, you kind of look ahead and you can see in front of you. You say, oh, there are the mountains, nearly there. And then you get to them and there's like the, the foothills. And then you know that you go up the foothills and down and then there's some slightly bigger ones. And, and suddenly they're not all at the same place. They're actually spread out. Do you, know what, do you know what I mean? So if you've been walking up a hill, you know, you get false summits. You think, I'm not there yet. It's the same with the prophet. He sees from a distance and it seems like it's all one thing. But actually when you get there from the benefit of a different vantage point, you see that there are the foothills and then there are the mountains. For the prophet back there, he sees them all as one event. The technical term for it is prophetic foreshortening, in case you're interested. 
And the prophet is saying judgment will come to these nations, but he's also in the very same breath seeing ahead, seeing partly what, uh, essentially what is happening by Jesus uh, happening, that Jesus will accomplish on the cross, that he will die in our places, our substitute for the sins of the world, in order that the new day, the new dawn will break. He is the firstborn from among the dead, isn't he? A sign of hopefulness to all who believe that we too will be raised. And one day, as uh, John in, in Revelation, quoting from Isaiah says, He will wipe away all the tears from our eyes and there will be no more death, sickness, sadness. Are we there yet? Are some of us sick and some of us weeping? Are some of us beset with disease still? Yes. We're not into sort of fake Christianity, pretending those don't happen. They do. But we live, unlike Isaiah, between the foothills of where he sees that God will uh, break the shroud. He will pierce the darkness that the Lord, he, the Lord himself will come amongst us. That that has happened ultimately and wonderfully and surely Christ has come and the new age has begun. But we're kind of standing between that point and the end of time when Christ returns and God comes and new Jerusalem descends and the new heavens and the new earth. Hear what Paul uh, writes in in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. For John, not only in chapter 21, verse 4, where we have those wonderful phrases, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He says it in chapter 17 too. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Wonderful. That Isaiah sees, he sees saying God will enter in and he will disband, dispel, remove the shroud that covers the entire earth. The death shroud that besets every single one of us because of sin, because of rebellion, because because it's a reality for all of us. And all of creation is now caught up in bondage to brokenness and decay. God says, I will come and I will remove that shroud. Jesus Christ, where, O death, is your sting? Where is the victory? It's gone. The great enemy, undone. Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. 
Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Do you know what the Hebrew word for praise the Lord is? You do. You sing it all the time. Hallelujah. You know some Hebrew. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It's very much, I mean, it's a Hebrew word, and, and this is um, kind of to be expected, but there's only four occurrences of the word hallelujah in the New Testament. Did you know that? I mean, you could say because they're writing in Greek, why would they write in, in, um, in Hebrew or Aramaic? But actually quite a lot of the, at least the Gospels, have got Hebrew or Aramaic in it, in, and the Gospel writers translate it for us. The four instances, if you're on your phone, you can search for this really quickly. The four instances of the word hallelujah in the New Testament occur in Revelation 19. And you know when they cry out, praise the Lord? When Babylon falls. When Babylon, who sums up all the opposition to God, falls and is defeated and conquered and no more shall rise and the people of God cry, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Hallelujah isn't just a phrase for us to sing and to declare when things are going well and things are good and we're kind of feeling a little bit happy-clappy and we've got that, oh, hallelujah kind of feeling. Actually, the statement that is caught up in Isaiah 25 and Revelation 19 is hallelujah when God is declared holy and bigger than we expect and he tears down every injustice and every act of unrighteousness and breaks the hold of death and everything that stands against him is judged and declared to be untrue and unright and is condemned and, and pushed away because for the new to come all that has to be dealt with, that we can cry hallelujah and worship because we know him to be a holy one and he conquers sin. The people of God cried out when they saw that all that stood against God is defeated and judged and consigned away from him and they cried, praise the Lord because evil and wickedness will not prevail. Even in Revelation, in that context, there's that beautiful picture of God preparing a table, a welcome banquet for those who have heard the invitation and said, I will come and declare, this is the one we trusted. He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Or in verse 6, he's already ordered the wine at Majestic and sent for the Ocado van of the finest meats. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. That as we worship, as we reflect, as we pray, as we look to the Lord who has made the way, we stand for truth and righteousness and learn what it is like to be holy. Not holy and set back and austere and unmoved. But calling and entering into this broken world and calling it to the invitation. Calling men and women, sisters and brothers, to calling them to this banquet. Saying, leave this life of lostness. Leave this place where actually there will be separation from God. 
come into life. For the shroud of death has been dispelled through Jesus. And the new age and the new order and the new way of which God will be present amongst all people and say there will be no more tears. He will wipe away the tears from all faces. What a beautiful, awe-inspiring, worship-motivating vision. And those... Those who reject, it's like the Moabites. They'll swim through manure because it's rubbish outside the wonder of God. Let's pray. Thank you for the prophecy through Isaiah. 